The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to the children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. <coughs> the Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word, Bless the Lord, all you hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Our sermon text today, just uh, seven verses. It's uh, Leviticus 10, it's verses 1 through 7, and this is entitled, Profane Fire Before the Lord. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Then Nadav and Avihu... <laughs> The sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Elsavan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did, according to the word of Moses. 
We use a fist bump to show a special approval of someone we know and meet up with. Instead of a handshake, we give them a little fist bump. It's more friendly than a handshake, and it is definitely not something that we would consider offering to someone of higher stature than we are unless they offered one first. In other words, when meeting the president, we would be foolish to put out our fist and say, hey, Don, put it there, buddy. He very well may put it there, but he also may think what an arrogant jerk Rather, etiquette would have us wait for him to make the first offer, and then we would respond to that. This is an unwritten code, and yet it is a sensible thing to do because this is what the culture expects. In the case of God, we too often act as if we have a right to extend out our hand in a fist bump and expect that he will respond accordingly. Preachers treat him this way, and the stupidity of it has flowed down to the youngest child in the pews. Christian radio will often speak of the personal nature of our relationship with God because of Christ, but they will at times bring it down to that close and personal fist bump level. We are the initiators of it, and he will certainly respond accordingly. In many ways, the sense of the true and absolute holiness of God is all but gone except in a very few churches in regard to the whole. But God is God. Despite having come in the form of a man and having lived among us, we must remember that he is holy. It is his very nature. Reading the law is a good thing because it reminds us of that. Today's passage is a perfect example for us to study and consider. Yes, we are under a far superior covenant with a much closer and more personal mediator, but we are still the created and he is still the creator. Let us remember this as we live in his presence. Our text verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 12. It's verses 28 and 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews is a part of which testament? Anyone? The New Testament. Really? The New? But it says we are to serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. What about the fist bumping? Doesn't that qualify? Let us not treat our position in Christ as something that allows us to be flippant in our attitude toward the Lord. And let us not deviate from the sound and fixed words of instruction that we have been given. Two of Aaron's sons did exactly this, and it cost them their lives. We have an anointing that rests upon us, which asks us to be holy, not to act as if we are above the very word that led us to that position in the first place. May this precious word instruct us, fill us, and guide us all the days that we live in his glorious presence, performing our duties to him and for his honor. The way we do this is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is fire from the Lord. It's verses 1 and 2. In the Bible, and especially during the time of the giving of the law, there are things which are prescribed, and then there is often a noted incident where a violation of that thing which is prescribed occurs. This is then followed with a most severe punishment for the violation. For example, in Leviticus, there is a violation of blaspheming the name of the Lord, which is followed with the punishment of being stoned to death. The same is true in the book of Numbers with a violation of the Sabbath. 
It is certain, as the Bible records, that other such violations were not handled in the same manner. But the examples are given to show us what is the just due for violating such a law. In not executing judgment on the first of such a violation, it would set a precedent that such an evil act or tendency was actually acceptable and that nothing would ever be done about such an infraction. In the coming verses, we will see such an instance. Laws were given, standards were expected, and the holiness of God was to be considered. If the Lord did not take the action that he took, it would have set a precedent that nothing would be done about all future violations that matched what occurred here. In fact, it would demonstrate an unjust and a fickle nature in God to let the first instance be overlooked and then to arbitrarily choose to punish a later violation of the same nature. However, no such fickleness would be seen if a later violation was forgiven. Instead, it would demonstrate the merciful nature of God, whose holiness was again violated, but who was willing to forgive the transgression nonetheless. Understanding this, each one of us has seen the latter aspect of God. We have been the recipients of his mercy when we were once objects of his wrath. Thank God that he did not hold us to the same standard as those who at first offended him. Keep these things in mind as you ponder what happens in this account and what really should happen to all people who are separated from the infinite holiness of God. Verse 1, Then Nadav and Avihu. These two sons of Aaron were introduced into the Bible in Exodus 6, verse 23, in the genealogical listing of the family of Moses and Aaron. They were then invited up Mount Sinai with Moses, Aaron, and 70 of Israel's elders, and there they had a meal in the presence of God. They were then called by name to minister as priests before the Lord, along with their father and two brothers in Exodus 28. Nadav means something like volunteer or willing, in the sense of willing to give. It comes from a primitive root, which gives the sense of volunteering or offering something spontaneously. Avihu means something like, whose father is he, when referring to God? Understanding that the term father in the Bible signifies one who is in authority, and thus to whom respect and honor is due. It is something implied in the use of the term. Thus, one under the father's authority is under obligation to perform their duty when requested. First one continues, the sons of Aaron. Now they are introduced alone, apart from their father for the first time. Unfortunately, being unattended by their father, they assumed that they could be true men of Israel on their own accord and stand before the Lord in whatever manner of their choosing. The Bible will later note that neither of these has children, and so they are still certainly very young. Their youthful indiscretion will be a most costly lesson for the priestly line of Israel and for Aaron in particular. Verse 1 going on, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. The sins to be found in these few recorded words are several. First, each took his censer. This implies that these were censers that were not fashioned for use in the sanctuary and which had not been a part of the consecration process. The word for censer in Hebrew is machtah. It comes from a word chata, which means terror, ruin, or destruction. It's a fitting concept in regards to what occurs. This is the first time that the word has been translated as censor, and yet it is certainly correct in its use. Their using it in this manner shows that not everything that was to be done in the sanctuary was specifically recorded. 
Rather, there were rites and implements which had purpose which are not specifically a part of the written code or which will later be included as a part of the written code. Such is the case with this type of censor. <laughs> Secondly, they came together to offer incense. This was a duty which was only to be conducted by one attending priest at a time. Thirdly, incense offered in a censor was only allowed by the high priest. According to the law, it is never noted as an offering made by anyone but him. The incense offered by the other priests was burnt in the golden altar in the holy place, or along with the offerings on the brazen altar, but never in censers. Fourth, it says that they offered profane, meaning strange fire. According to verse 1612, the high priest was to take fire for the incense from the brazen altar, which had been sanctified by the Lord's fire. It is the same fire which had come out and burnt the ordination offering on it. This is the fire that was to never be extinguished from the first moment that it was lit. It is a celestial fire, having been sanctified by Jehovah himself. Instead of using this fire, sanctified by the Lord, they lit their own fire to ignite the incense. The word used to describe the fire is zara, which means another. It can be used when speaking of another god, or an adulteress who goes after another, and so on. They failed to use what was holy and fitting for their offering and instead used that which was another. Thus, it was profane. Fifth, it says that they offered this profane fire, Lifne Yehovah, or in the face of the Lord. This could be disregarded as a mere idiom that they did it in any given spot, intending it to be as an offering to the Lord, but such is not the case. Rather, they went directly into the most holy place and there they offered this incense. We know this is the case because Leviticus 16 begins with these words. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place behind the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. It is after the death of these two sons that the Lord warns Aaron that even he is not allowed to come any time he wished inside the veil. The implication is that this was at least a part of why they were destroyed, along with all of the other infractions of their assigned sacred duties. Verse 4 seems to imply that their bodies were laying before the sanctuary, outside of it, when they were to be carried out. And almost all great scholars cite this as being the case. However, the word when translated as sanctuary is not correct. We will see the intended meaning when we get there. It does not merely mean that they were to be taken away from the sanctuary's presence. In all, these transgressions demonstrated an uncaring attitude towards the highly specific, God-directed commands that had been previously laid out. They probably felt that because they were ordained as priests that they had a run of the place and that they were even above the laws which ordained them in the first place, something not uncommon in those ordained even to this day. Ancient tradition, which is actually included in verse 9 of the Palestinian Chaldee version, says that these two sons had drank too much of the drink offerings and were therefore drunk at the time they did this. And this is more than possible because the very first prohibition after this account is finished is that of the priests not drinking alcohol when they perform their duties before the Lord. 
It is thus one of only two instances in the entire Bible that the drinking of alcohol is expressly forbidden. One is in the priest's duties while they ministered in the sanctuary, and the second is during the Nazarite vow, which is found in Numbers chapter 6. Verse 2, or I'm sorry, 1 continues, which he had not commanded them. Asher lo tziva otam, that no commanded them. This is a figure of speech where the negative form is used for an emphatic affirmative. Thus, there is more to be understood than is expressed in the words. Not only did they do something which was without some type of command or authority from God, but they did it against his express command. Therefore, it should read something like, which was expressly forbidden to them. There is no such command recorded for us to read, but not everything that they were told to do is necessarily recorded. And even more, it is implicitly to be understood from Leviticus 6, verse 12, that the only fire to be used is to come from the sanctified fire by the Lord when he consumed the offering of the ordination. The two sons have done what was expressly forbidden, and in so doing, there is now a consequence for their actions. Verse 2, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And there went out fire from the face of Jehovah and consumed them. It is the exact same words, word for word, which were used only two verses earlier. But instead of them, it spoke of the offering on the altar. The timing of this event is made all the more notable because it was the last thing that was recorded right at the end of chapter 9. There it said these words, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar when all the people saw it. They shouted and fell on their faces. The words are the same. The source is the same. The effect is the same. And yet the result is quite the opposite. Life and acceptance was realized in the offering upon the altar. Death and disavowal was realized in these two young men. 1 Peter chapter 4, citing an example found in Ezekiel chapter 8, tells us that judgment begins at the house of God. Such is the case here. It is the first time that it is seen in Scripture, right at the very beginning of the time of the Aaronic priesthood, but it will not be the last. This, however, is truly a memorable incident which follows directly on the heels of that other memorable incident. The Lord had shown his approval of the ordination process. He had accepted the offering made to him, and he thus indicated that the ministry of Aaron and his sons would be acceptable before him. The fire of the Lord indicated all of this. It was a fire of approval, acceptance, and affirmation. But within an extremely short period of time, be it minutes or maybe hours, his fire became one of disapproval, disavowal, and destruction. The same sanctifying fire of the Lord which came out to acknowledge and accept the sanctity of the ordination process had now come out to sanctify that which had been profaned after completion of that ordination process. Instead of an offering for sin upon the altar, their lives were taken. Paul speaks of exactly this concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There he says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. A New Testament example of what has occurred here is actually found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, there it says these words. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing the words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me what you sold the land for, so much? She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. What happened to Nadav and Avihu is certainly what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 5, we will see that these two will be carried out by their tunics. Because of this, the fire of the Lord spoken of here is not a fire of heat, but one which quenches life nonetheless, just as it was in the book of Acts. The price for the disobedience in both of these instances was high because there was always the necessity of God vindicating his own glorious majesty. Having said this, there is no reason to make the mental jump from temporal punishment to eternal punishment, such as the case in both Leviticus and Acts. God knows who are his, and he will choose to discipline or punish as he feels is worthy for the offense, both in order to rectify the situation and to demonstrate and reveal his divine attributes as he sees fit. And just because some are punished more severely than others, it does not mean that their position in heaven is necessarily forfeit. Of this verse, Adam Clark judiciously notes the following. He says, The Lord is a consuming fire. He will either hallow or destroy us. He will purify our souls by the influence of his spirit or consume them with the breath of his mouth. The tree which is properly planted in good soil is nourished by the genial influences of the sun. Pluck it up from its roots and the sun, which was the cause of its vegetative life and perfection, now dries up its juices decomposes its parts and causes it to molder into dust. Thus must it be done to those who grieve and do despite to the Spirit of God. Reader, hast thou this heavenly fire? Hear then the voice of God. Quench not the Spirit. Profane fire is offered to the Lord. Wrath and indignation is the result. First and foremost, we should have checked his word. What has happened is only our fault. The Lord has shown us what is right and good. What is proper is carefully laid out. His word is not difficult. It can be understood. In careful study, we can be sure, having no doubt. But it is so much easier to have our ears tickled. Careful study is hard work. It causes the head pain. But if we allow ourselves to stew and become pickled, we will throw our heavenly rewards right down the drain. Help us, Lord, to be attentive to your word. 
Help us to pay attention to the instruction that we have heard. Our second thought today is the holiness of the Lord. It's verses 3 through 7. Verse 3, and Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, Moses immediately steps in to keep the situation from getting out of hand. He already knows the glory of the Lord in a way that no other person could imagine. And so he reminds Aaron of the penalty for displaying anything other than holiness, even now. Moses is even more concerned about Aaron's life being kept safe than he is about his emotional distress at the loss of his sons. Therefore, in order to keep him from doing something rash and also dying before the Lord, he reminds him of the Lord's own words. None of what he says next is a direct quote of anything that we have read, but the principles have already been seen several times. In other words, what Moses says is to be taken in a reflective tense, not in a passive one. It is how things are with God at all times. He was this way. He is this way. Everything about how the Lord has dealt with Israel, Moses, and Aaron has been a demonstration of what Moses will now speak. He simply speaks of the judgment of God which always exists and which necessitated what came about. Verse 3 continues, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Bikrove ekadash. In those who come near me, I will be shown as holy. The words here bear directly on what will be said in the next verse. They are words which confirm that the two sons of Aaron died not in the courtyard, but in the most holy place, there before the ark itself where they had gone to present their fatal offering of incense before the Lord. They had made a sad lapse in judgment, assuming that they were immune from judgment and thus above the law of the Lord because of their consecrated status. Assuming they were encouraged with a little wine as well, they were emboldened when they should have been humble. They were tipsy when they should have been of sound mind, and they were set on a course of death rather than one of life. The cherubim woven into the veil warned them of attempting to work their way into paradise, but they brushed the figures aside and proudly produced their scented offering. But it bore the stench of death, not the aroma of life. They drew near to holiness, but their hearts were filled with pride at their newly attained office, and that was their downfall in this most holy presence. He had shown that those who come near him, he would be seen as holy. He had done this for them in the ordination process, but they had failed to live up to what was bestowed upon them, and so he was shown holy in them through the punishment that he inflicted. Verse 3 continues, And before all the people, I must be glorified. And before the face of all the people, I will glorify myself. The Lord had just shown his glory numerous times already. And so it should have been perfectly understood as an axiom that he was, in fact, glorious. The garments of the priests were given as they were told for glory and for beauty. These things and countless others were done to display the glory of God to the people. He glorifies himself in such ways. But when one of his chosen priests sinned openly in a public way, he vindicated his honor and his glory through their destruction. There's nothing arbitrary or unreasonable about what occurred. It was evident from his first dealings with Israel, and it had become even more evident with each step of the process that led them to where they were at this moment. If we consider this from our own time and situation, How much more just and acceptable will it be when he glorifies himself through judgment on the world in the tribulation period? We have another 3,500 years of proofs of his glory demonstrated in fulfilled prophecy. 
in Christ the Lord, in his church, and in his return of Israel to their land. Imagine the severity of the judgment which is due upon the false preachers, teachers, and ministers of his word. Verse 3 continues, So Aaron held his peace, ve'yedom acharon, and was mute Aaron. Upon realizing the just nature of what occurred, Aaron completely shut up any possible questioning of the Lord's judgment. He realized that what happened was just, it was right, and it was necessary. It reflects the words of David in the 39th Psalm. There he says, I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. We can rage against the judgments of man. We can be angry at the unfair decisions of our boss. We can shake our fist in the judge's face, or we can demonstrate against the injustices brought upon us by our own government. But we cannot question the Lord's decisions. What he determines is perfect, fair, and final. It is a lesson Paul passes on to both Jew and Gentile as he sums up a portion of his argument in the book of Romans, where he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The Lord is a consuming fire, and he is especially jealous for the sake of his own holy name. When that name is dishonored or when his glory is diminished through the actions of his chosen, a demonstration of wrath is the natural result. Therefore, we should pray as the Shulamite did towards her beloved from the Song of Solomon. She said, set me as a seal upon your heart and as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Verse 4. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them. Now, before I give my comments on this verse, isn't it odd that he gives all those names in one verse? You come to something like that and you say, why would he, why didn't he just say he called his cousins over, right? <laughs> Let's find out why. Okay. Moses now has a duty which needed to be attended to. There are two corpses which must be removed from the camp. This cannot be accomplished by Aaron or one of his remaining sons. To touch a dead body would defile them, and they could not perform their duties. And so he calls for Mishael and Eltsaphan. Mishael means who is what God is. Eltsaphan means something like God has concealed or God is hidden. These two are the sons of Uziel or God of strength. He is the uncle of Aaron, making the other two his cousins. The word for uncle is Dod, which interestingly and literally means beloved. They now have a somber duty awaiting them. Just so you know, the thing on the wall there, it says, Ani le dodi ve dodi li. I am to my beloved and my beloved is to me. But the word dod, beloved, is translated as uncle here. Another curious thing. Why is that? The Lord is trying to tell us something. Verse 4 continues, come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. The words here are very precise. Two verbs in a row without any adjoining and begin this clause. It simply says, kirbu seu, go near, carry. He uses the verb form of the adjective that he just used in verse 3, karav, or come near. It then says that they are to carry their brothers, meaning their relatives, from the face of the holy. He repeats another word that he just cited of the Lord in the previous verse, kadosh, or holy. The Lord said, in those who come near me, I will be shown as holy. Now he says, come near, carry your brothers from the face of HaKodesh, 
or the holy. He is explicitly instructing them to do what would otherwise be forbidden. Nobody but a priest could enter the presence of the Lord, but the exceptional circumstances demanded exceptional actions. They were to enter the presence of the Lord and remove the bodies of those in whom he had shown himself holy. A picture is formed out of these seven names. Moses, or he who draws out, calls Mishael and Elzaphan, or who is what God is, and God is concealed for a task. They are the sons of God is my strength, who is the beloved of Aaron, or very high, and they are to carry out Nadav, or willing, and Avihu, or whose father is he. The entire verse points to the work of Christ, who, one, draws out for us the nature of God so that we can understand it. It is he, too, who is what God is, and he reveals what three God has concealed. In these revelations of himself, he is the son of four, the God of strength, and who is the beloved of the one who is very high, meaning God the Father. The dead are willing, and whose father, meaning God, is he. The unfortunate death of these two men is recorded in a most marvelous way to give us an entire snapshot of the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ. It is that by which the Lord in the highest sense has shown himself holy. Verse 5, so they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp as Moses had said. The two cousins of Aaron do as they are directed. Having the expressed permission to enter the most holy place, they retrieve the bodies of Nadav and Avihu and carry them by their priestly garments out of the camp. Tradition holds that the garments of the priests, when they were worn out, were used as wicks for lamps of the sanctuary. However, these could not be so used as they were defiled. They, together with the corpses of the bodies, were buried outside the camp. Several scholars have deduced from verses such as this that modern practices of burying people within the confines of cities is an abhorrent practice. They go further and then note that it is utterly contemptible that the dead should be buried on the grounds of churches. That is both highly legalistic and it is stupid. The camp of Israel cannot be equated with any such notion in either the modern city or the modern church. Common sense and reason does need to be used when considering our internment processes. The defilement caused by death ceased in Christ. Death has lost its sting, and a dead body is simply a shell which will decompose, but which possesses no power to cause the redeemed to become unclean. This is a precept of the law which is fulfilled in Christ. As far as the account in Leviticus, it is now the eighth day of the ordination process, and it is just six days before the Passover was to be slain. Because of their defilement in touching these corpses, they will now be excluded from being allowed to participate in the Passover ceremony. Thus, they are at least partly included in the account which is recorded in Numbers chapter 9. Here's what it says. Now, there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse. You wonder why this story is here? There you go. So that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day. And those men said to him, we have become defiled by a human corpse. It's at least these two and maybe others. Okay. So it says, um, why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? And Moses said to them, stand still that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover on the 14th day of the second month. At twilight they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and ceases to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offerings of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. Verse 6, And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes. The priests were held to a very high standard, as we will see with other such things which will continue to be required within the law. The word used concerning uncovering their head is para. This comes from a root which means to loosen. Thus the idea is to let the hair be free or disheveled or to shave it off such as in a sign of mourning. So to uncover one's head or to tear the clothes were outward signs of mourning. However, because they were ordained in their priestly clothes, they were to maintain dignity and honor before the Lord, thus showing the Lord as holy, exactly as was stated explicitly in verse 3. Eventually, the law will specify in chapter 21 that the priests who were sons of Aaron could show signs of mourning for their close relatives. But in verse 21.10, it says that the high priest could never, never uncover his head or tear his clothes. At this time, Aaron and both his sons had the anointing oil on them, and they were thus held to the highest standards of all. Further, such signs could imply to others that they believed the punishment was unmerited and that they were accusing the Lord of unjust severity in his actions. Should they treat him as unholy again, as Nadav and Avihu did, then there would be consequences. Verse 6 continues, Lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. The Lord has already shown that the severest punishment would result from such an offense. How much more if the offenses continued right on the heels of his judgment on the first offense? The only thing that they could expect would be death. But even more, wrath would come upon all of the people. There would be no ordained mediator left for the people. And as we saw in chapter 4 concerning the sin offerings, guilt would then be on all of them. Without a high priest to mediate, only guilt would remain. And with guilt, then only wrath could be their just due. They had, as a congregation, verbally agreed to the terms of the covenant, and they had made themselves liable to all that it encompassed when they did. This included placing themselves under the high priest as their sole mediator before the Lord. This concept of a corporate sense of belonging continues on in the church, believe it or not. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Verse 6 continues, But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. The word says, and let your brothers. It could be translated as but, thus showing a contrast to Aaron and his sons, but it could also mean something entirely different. If the intent is and, which seems likely, then this verse would read, and let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, mourn over the burning that the Lord has kindled. Instead of mourning over the loss of the two sons of Aaron, it is a mourning directed to the people of Israel who had seen the glory of the Lord diminished 
through the actions of their representatives. And that is what it's saying. It's not speaking about, oh, poor Israel, go mourn for these two children. It's saying, oh, poor Israel, mourn because you have offended the Lord at the very outset of the ministry, which is intended to take care of you as a people. The end is correct. At the very beginning of the priesthood, which comprises the mediatorial aspect of the law of Moses, there had been a major, major failing, which resulted in the indignation of the Lord and an outward sign of his vast displeasure at their conduct under the law. From the outset of the priest's mediation of the law, death, death was the very first thing seen. Think of that. This then is set in direct contrast to the mediation of Jesus Christ under the new covenant. Instead of death, God had accepted the first duties of the mediator, his atoning sacrifice, and he had approved of it. Having so approved of it, he confirmed that approval in the resurrection. It is the ultimate sign of his extreme approval at Christ's conduct under the new covenant. The contrast could not be clearer. Instead of the fallible and sin-filled nature of the priests of the Aaronic priesthood, we see the infallible, sinless nature of Christ, the high priest of the new covenant. In all ways, his is the superior mediation. Verse 7, you shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. This is telling them that they were not to follow Mishael and Elzaphon to the burial, nor were they to attend any funeral service which would be conducted, thus taking them from their place at the door of the tent of meeting. As I said, there are similar prohibitions which are specifically stated for the high priest. That's found in chapter 21 of Leviticus. He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. And we're watching, I told some of you earlier, we're watching the uh, series The Bible on Netflix right now. And just last night, I watched the part where the high priest of Israel tore his garments in violation of the law. Now think of the significance of that. He is the mediator for the people. Christ died in fulfillment of the law of Moses, right? Therefore, he has no mediation for what he did. In other words, the law of Moses is ended in that act. It's completely ended because there is no mediation apart from Christ, and he never came to Christ. There's no record of it. The law of Moses is gone. People keep trying to insert it into our lives. They keep trying to tell us to observe a Sabbath or don't eat pork or don't do this or don't do that. The Bible is so absolutely abundantly clear on what has happened in it. He's showing us the superiority of what Christ did over every single thing else that we are seeing right now in these these obscure verses that very few people ever read, and if they do read them, they read them quickly just to get through them and not study them, and yet this is the heart of God right here in the book of Leviticus. The high priest was never to leave the sanctuary at such a time, lest it would appear to the people that he had a greater duty to attend to the dead than minister between the people and the living God. Such is the case now, not only for the high priest, but for his sons also. Service to the Lord comes before all things. Verse 7 continues, For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. The anointing oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of life, not death. As this is so, 
They were to have nothing in common with death because sin is the source of death. In Christ, we are reckoned as dead to sin because of his work. We are dead to the law and thus dead to sin. This is why we are, according to Paul, sealed with the Holy Spirit upon belief. Again, the contrast is made perfectly clear that the law of Moses is wholly inferior to the new covenant found in Christ. Never, never allow anybody to have you reinsert the law of Moses into your theology. If you leave this church today because you say, that guy is too ugly, I can't take it anymore, that's fine. Go to a church where they will preach the grace of Christ and never reinsert the law. It is the most damaging thing that you could ever do to your theology, is to reinsert what Christ has already done. What can we add to it? It's shaming God, and it's shaming the work that he fulfilled in his own son for us. Never allow that. Verse 7 finishes with these words, and they did according to the word of Moses. The obedience of Aaron to the word of Moses is explicitly stated here to show that Aaron and his sons understood the gravity of the situation and were obedient to the precept. It was a lesson for them and for the people of Israel that the priests were first and foremost responsible to the Lord. From this, there would always be the reminder of how the priests were to conduct themselves. The failings of future priests and what occurs to them for their failures would be understood in accord with this first precedent-setting account, which came at the very inception of the priesthood. As a sober warning, we turn once again to Adam Clark, who states these words concerning this passage. Every part of the religion of God is divine. He alone knew what he designed by its rites and ceremonies for that which they prefigured. He's speaking of the law of Moses. Everything prefigured something in Christ. He says the whole economy of redemption by Christ was conceived in his own mind and was out of the reach of human wisdom and conjecture. He, therefore, who altered any part of this representative system, speaking of these two sons, who omitted or added anything, assumed a prerogative which belonged to God alone and was certainly guilty of a very high offense against the wisdom, justice, and righteousness of his maker. Adam Clark is spot on. The sons of Aaron added to the word of God, doing that which their own minds conjured up, and they suffered for it. The warning to not add to or subtract from God's word is repeated several times in scripture. Under the new covenant, we are given broad latitude in conducting our lives, both personal and religious, in the presence of the Lord. However, we are also given many specific and direct admonitions as well. We are not to depart from them, and we are not to add to them in the sense of mandating that which is contrary to his word. I personally tremble for the many pastors who stand in the pulpit and claim a word from the Lord in order to conduct their ministries as they see fit or to impose upon the congregation in a manner which suits them, but which is not according to scripture. Let us never allow this into our lives. Rather, let us offer holy fire to the Lord in accord with his word and in a manner which he will find acceptable. But there is the truth that no offering at all No offering to the Lord can be considered acceptable unless we first belong to that same Lord. The way to do this is through calling on Jesus Christ. Only through that act can we be reconciled to God, to our Father, and only in that can we be made right to offer offerings to him. And so I'd like to really quickly tell you, in case you're listening online and you've never heard the simple gospel, that Jesus Christ came to rectify a problem between God and man. 
God, as we have seen in these verses, is holy. And he's not just holy, he is infinitely holy. He is so holy that our one sin, being born, because we inherit sin from our Father, our one sin infinitely separates us from him. That's how glorious he is. There can be no fellowship with man because of that sin. And then in our lives, we've sinned more and we've done things wrong and we have offended this glorious creator. And because of that, there is no fellowship between the two of us. But he sent Christ to rectify that situation by coming into the stream of time. He's infinitely holy like his father. He's divine in all ways. And yet he is human. He's a human being. And so he can be the mediator between the two. He lived that life under this law that he gave perfectly, never sinning under it. Just as these people did, he did not. Everything he did was without flaw or fault. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our sins, an atoning sacrifice for what we had done wrong. And as I said a little while ago, the proof that he did prevail is that he came out of the grave. The resurrection proves it. God accepted his sacrifice. He gave him life eternal, and he promises the same to us if we will simply receive Jesus Christ. But if you are sticking to the law of Moses in full or in part, you are separated from God. If you are stuck in this Hebrew roots movement, you are, you are not pleasing to God at all. You need to get away from that. That is the one thing that Paul warns against again and again and again and again in his writings. Stay with the grace of Jesus Christ. Do not reinsert what Christ has done. Because if you do, you are offending God and you are separated. You are a debtor to the entire law. Trust in Christ, rest in Christ, and be reconciled to God through Christ. This is what I would ask you to do today. Our closing verse comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's verses 9 through 11. For if the ministry of condemnation, sounds like what we read today, doesn't it? The ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what was passing away, meaning the law of Moses, was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next week is Leviticus 10, verses 8 through 20. It's really cold at this temp, you know. It's entitled Absolute Zero. That'll be our 15th Leviticus sermon. I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And think of it, before I get into our poem today, think of it. I say that he can wash away your sin and purify you completely and wholly. The law of Moses couldn't do it. It's evident from the very inception of the law of Moses, and we're going to see it again and again and again as we go through the law. This is why we study the law, is to understand that we need Jesus Christ. We don't study the law so that we can apply it to our lives. I'm sorry. We study the law so that we can apply Christ to our lives. Our poem is called The Burning Which the Lord Has Kindled. Then Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Not good, we must admit. So fire went out from the Lord, a deadly sword, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, 
These words to him he was relaying. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace after his sons had died. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and to them said, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp now that they are dead. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said, according to his authoritative stamp. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons as well, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people, as to you I tell. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled for a spell. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, so you have heard. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you, and they did according to Moses' word. Lord, how good we have it in the age of grace. We have the whole word laid out before us. In obedience to you, we are sure of a heavenly place by faith and faith alone in the finished work of Jesus. This is what your word tells us, that the law only brought death, sorrow, and pain. But now we are saved by faith alone, nothing plus. Help us not to throw such a gift right down the drain. Give us wisdom to pursue you through your superior word and be obedient to it by calling on Jesus. Yes, may we not deviate from the gospel we have heard and which is able to save each and every one of us. Hallelujah to you, O God. Hear our praise. Hallelujah to you, O Lord, as to you our voices raise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson which we learned today, which reminds us something we forget so often when we think we can just snap our fingers and call you close, that you are holy. It says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, but I know that we need to be on our face when we get there and to treat you in the holiness that you are and that we will only possess because of the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you for bestowing upon us your glory and your holiness and help us never to treat it with contempt. And Lord God, we certainly pray for our two Lisas on other sides of the world with troubles in their life right now. And we pray for healing and their finances and their collarbones and just in their lives in general. And we certainly also pray, Lord, for Paul, who is struggling so greatly right now. And we pray that he's having a good day with his family and that they're helping him and comforting him. And we mourn over his state because how much he loves coming to church and how much he loves fellowshipping with the people here. We would ask that you would restore that to him soon. And Lord, help us to be attentive to him throughout the week if he has a need to be willing to go and help him out with it and Elaine as well. And Lord, we thank you once again for this marvelous story. Keep reminding us of your holiness because it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to treat you in a way that is not appropriate. Help us to do this, Lord, that you will be glorified through how we conduct our lives in your presence. Oh God, we thank you for all you've done for us. We worship you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.